0: Hey, hey, and welcome to That So New Media, a podcast about tech's impact on creative culture. Today, we'll be talking about creating human connections in the digital world. What it's like to be vulnerable to a screen with the hope that someone out there will get and maybe appreciate what you've put out into the world. Today, our friends are Nikki Case. It's me. <laughs> and Kate Hollenbeck. Hello. Nikki Case is a Canadian indie game dev. They're best known for developing the game Coming Out Simulator, and has since gone on to create a series of explorable explanations which are these incredible games that are used to explain complex systems. They just released a game about anxiety, which, when I played the demo, hit way too close to home. Kate Hollenbach is an artist, programmer, and educator based in Chicago. She works with interactive systems and new tech relating body, gesture, and physical space. She used to be director of design and computation at Oblong Industries before getting her MFA. You can definitely tell how user experience influences her artwork, which is why I'm such a big fan.
1: Hi, friends. Thanks for joining us. Hi, yeah. Thanks for uh, inviting me to this uh, inaugural podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Hi,
0: Natalie. Thanks for having
1: us.
0: (laughs) Of course. Um, So I casually had you both in a show a few years ago called Vulnerability, the Space Between. Both of your bodies of work do so much to highlight very human experiences that we all feel like we encounter alone. Uh, What drove you to begin making work like that?
1: Because I'm human.
0: (laughs) That's a good answer. <laughs> Aren't we all? Are we all? <laughs> Mostly. You know, like, uh, Man, it depends when someone is listening to this podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, if any of you cyborgs in the future are listening, you're cool. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: but I mean, like being human isn't the only thing, right? All of, so many of us are human, but not all of us are, I guess, able to make work or thought about making work that's so vulnerable. Um, Nikki, like outside of just being human, you know, was there something that inspired you to make stuff?
1: Uh, inspired me to be vulnerable in my work.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a huge step by itself to make work by itself. Like to start is already difficult enough, but then to like pour your heart and soul into something, I'm sure, is just like a whole new
1: level. I, I guess like um thinking, the question is not really like why did you start making art because like kids everywhere like make art. The question is like why did you continue or like not stop making arts because you know it's fair every kid starts making little finger painting drawings on the walls and stuff and then at some point the parents tell them to cut that shit out and uh <laughs> no. do something more productive to their life like finance you know <laughs> 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 um so why do I keep making um art I guess um I guess like one for me I'm like super lucky that one it actually did pay the bill so that's that's really really lucky and two that like Other people also found it valuable. And also like three that actually I myself found it valuable. And I think like, um, you know, the last one, like me finding it valuable, like also does lead to the other people finding it valuable and all that. So that's the answer for why I'm continuing to make art. So why I started getting vulnerable? I guess like I was inspired by other vulnerable artists. The very first vulnerable piece of art I made was coming out simulator. Mm. I think all my previous stuff was very, um, it didn't have me in it. Mm And then the first game was, hey, here's when I came out to my parents and it went horribly. Mm. So I don't know how I made that switch from like nothing to everything. <laughs> but I was inspired by, um, yeah, other artists who tell their stories in a vulnerable way. Uh, specifically, Anna Anthropy. Yeah. Her flash game, Dysphoria, uh, was like the first time I've seen in, in a game something that's so personal. Like, I think it's like the first like personal autobiography game I've ever mm. seen. So, so inspired by that and to tell my story. And I guess, mm, wow. here I am.
0: Yeah, that's a good answer. For you, Kate, I've watched you go from you know being a director of design and computation to then like choosing to go and do an MFA. And I'm sure you were doing your own artwork before that, but what made you take the huge switch?
2: I think that I went back to grad school hoping to make space to do more artwork and hoping to reconnect with my own voice and ask some questions that were hard to ask when you're responsible for An entire design team and the usability of a product and making that be something that supports the company and the salary of your peers uh, and colleagues.
0: (laughs) My God. Um, No pressure. No
2: pressure. Um, (laughs) So I think that going to school, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. I think my initial thought was that I would continue doing some work um, with embodied interaction and return to that more. Um, In the early Days when Oblong was first founded, that was what they were known for. Was being uh, a company that had been created by the designer of the Minority Report interface, John Underkoffler. So I thought I would reconnect with some of the ideas from that and going to school, and it actually didn't really happen. In part because I had been out of school for so long that smartphones hadn't really been around when I was uh, in undergrad, when I was in school earlier, and I just couldn't really? stop. Yeah. Well, yeah, the iPhone specifically, <laughs> right? Not all cell phones, but the iPhone um, came out the year that I finished uh, undergrad. And when I went back to school, it really, really struck me how much the like social habits of a classroom and uh, school environment had changed with the introduction of the smartphone. Like, I couldn't believe Some of the things that me and my classmates would do in class, uh, just in part because it hadn't been possible when I was a student before, uh, even though I had been seeing them happen in meetings, of course, at my job. So I became really interested in using my art practice to kind of investigate this like change of habit that had resulted in people's day-to-day lives from using smartphones, their iPhones, Android phones,
0: and so on. Dang. So both of you, it seems like we're either looking to connect with people or trying to answer your know, own questions about life in general or um, musings, I guess. Has, that, has making work helped your own healing process in
1: some way? Oh, yeah. We just found the meaning of life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> and what is it, Nikki? <laughs> I don't know. We kind of lost it after we found it. It's hard to hold on to. Damn it. <laughs>
2: it's
0: always changing or maybe the question is do we ever really heal (laughs) i guess for me personally when i think about making art a lot of it is like oh i'm facing a problem and by going through this process or this journey of making something in turn it in a way heals that question or heals that problem or perhaps starts a new one um so i guess for both of you um when you were looking for an answer to these questions by making work does making
1: work help the healing process? Actually, yeah. Um, not to plug my own recent work here, but um, Adventures of Anxiety. Do it. <laughs> you can play Adventures of Anxiety for free at nk.me slash anxiety. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like I think like working on Adventures of Anxiety actually helped me a lot with my anxiety disorder. Um, because, um, and I guess I don't want to spoil too much of the game because you can play it for free at nk.me. Yeah, okay. Um. <laughs> um because, like, in the very beginning, like uh when I started making the project like so so the premise of the adventureurious anxiety is uh, for the for you listeners, so you can play this game okay um <laughs> it's an interactive story between a human and their anxiety, and you play as the anxiety, so my original plan for this was that you would play as a kind of a villain protagonist, and you know you would defeat a human for each round, but each round would get harder because the human starts learning like cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness or whatever and in the end, the happy ending is that you lose. Like, that was the original plan. Um, that is, that's a a, that's a happy ending because you lose. Yeah. But, uh, after I actually started, like, writing this and like, trying to create this project, I realized that that's kind of a one boring story and two, like, not emotionally authentic. Cause, like, my healing process is definitely not linear like that. And it's also boring because in that case, the anxiety character is just kind of a skeletor like villain where it's just like evil for the sake of evil. The big moment uh when the story actually clicked together, and also in my own healing process of anxiety, was um giving fear a motivation. Like, if fear is a character, what is fear's motivation? And the answer was fear wants to protect you. And I think like once I made the story about you play as a character that genuinely wants to protect and help their human, but it's just really overprotective. One, that made the story much more compelling, and two, actually helped me with my own. Uh, anxiety disorder, because like, I've always heard, you know, the, the saying, oh, you gotta become more compassionate towards your own self and all that. And you gotta be more compassionate to even these negative parts of yourself. And it's like, yeah, I, I can't just will myself to be compassionate. <laughs> it's like, like just do enjoy it. your vegetable <laughs> Just like, enjoy the bitter, horrible taste of arugula. You know, it's just like, <laughs> can't just will yourself into it. And I guess like, once I like, it's kind of like weird. Like, I guess like, Empathizing with my fear, like, or like sympathizing, or like knowing it has a motivation, Mm -hmm. and it's not just like some Skeletor-like villain. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess like going from like a Skeletor-like villain to um, uh, who's a good sympathetic villain? Uh... Um, Doctor Freeze, uh, that guy from uh, Spider-Man: Enter the Multiverse. you 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 know the guy, that sympathetic villain guy. You know, I love that movie. Oh, 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 oh. It's Uh, Empathetic Villain. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, okay.
0: (laughs) It's interesting that you're giving us an opportunity to empathize with something that you're kind of motivated or, like, geared to hate. Mm -hmm. Um, And by truly understanding it, you can overcome it, I guess is what I'm getting from what you're saying.
1: Uh, I guess, like, it's like that, Mm -hmm. except uh, for the word overcome. I think, like... The words not so much overcome as find a way to collaborate with. Mm. And I know that sounds super abstract, but I don't want to give any, no, anything no, too no. concrete because that would be spoilers for the game. <laughs> Which is at end case. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but <laughs> I'll more concretely. Um, yeah, I guess I like, guess kind of like a mission statement in my head um, for making this game is mm. I want to do for fear what Inside Out did for sadness. Ooh, interesting. It's my little fucking tagline that I. Yeah. Used in my own head for this game. I love that. Um well it's like a couple different things I wanted to do differently. Um one is that inside out, uh sadness wasn't really a character. You never really got a sense of her motivation. Right, yeah. And two, this is not like a fault of Pixars, but like I just wanted to make my game like a lot more explicit about the moral of the story. <laughs> so <laughs> I love how on um, like one of the
0: first episodes of my podcast, we are dissing Pixar and get banned somewhere.
1: I said, I, just, <laughs> I said it was an inspiration. I'm just saying they've done a little bit better.
0: No, no, I think that's totally fair. I think like definitely for really complex topics like that, you need an intro, which they did very, very well. And now we're, you're allowing us to dig even deeper into what those mean. Um, and so for Kate, I was actually thinking while Nikki was um, talking about like almost empathizing with the mm-hmm. villain I don't see the phone personally as a villain, but when I think about your piece, Phone Loves You Too, where you recorded both the front and the back cameras for yourself over the course of 31 days, which is an extremely, extremely vulnerable piece, um, you're almost giving personality to a phone, which, you know, in modern media is extremely villainized, I feel.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, a lot of companies have predatory practices where they're, designing their apps to be addictive so that people want to log into them daily, or they might have a metric where they're trying to measure their the success of their app by the amount of time that a user spends. Um, so in some sense, the designer can be incentivized to boost these metrics. And I think that the impact that this design process has on the user is that they know that they're they're being drawn into the device. But I think it's also not that simple. I mean, a lot of times that we are checking into the device, we might be checking in with someone we care about, you know, sending a text message to a friend or a partner. I moved across the country recently about a year ago for a job and being able to text all of my friends back at home was you know, an important thing that kept me going every day. Uh, so I think for me, it's not a question of is the device itself an evil yeah. <laughs> thing or not, but certainly it can be, you know, designed and manipulated to work in that way.
0: Definitely. Given the way that you explain phones and how it lets to connect to people, that's kind of how I view it as well. It's a tool. And so, you know, when we think about all these headlines of is technology disconnecting us or all these kind of like basically clickbait type things, it makes me wonder, is that really true? and So for me, I guess the question for both of you is both of you use different mediums to create these interactive stories to make more human connections. And how has new tech allowed you to do it in ways that other mediums haven't? New tech to create what? To create more human connections or like deeper human connections that maybe other past mediums haven't.
2: Hmm.
0: I mean, when I think about like film or when I think about like books, it to me, it feels like almost like a one-way discussion or a one-way scenario. Whereas like for me, interactive work, it's like almost a dialogue where you're reacting or you can create a reactive space. For me personally, like the internet is an incredible medium to use because you can now connect with people from all over the world, which like you almost couldn't before.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Or it was much more difficult before.
1: Yeah, I guess like it's uh, hard for me because like all my stuff has been single player. So you don't form a connection with anyone. It's single player. Mm -hmm, Totally.
0: But I mean, like it's single player, but at the same time, the fact that someone else across the world could almost experience a version of your story or walk through a really difficult experience that you had to deal with or live with um, was like an ability for someone else to feel, I guess, less alone. And in a way, to me, that's connecting. It might not necessarily be like a direct conversation or a direct like interaction with someone else, but for someone to be able to be like, oh, wow, I'm not alone. is a really powerful emotion.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um and I but I think for that one it's the I guess I if you're thinking of like say Coming Out Simulator or Inventions of Anxiety, um I guess, I guess it's more of the more of the story, not really the new I guess for me, and I guess my, my, my own personal bias is like um using the medium in service of a message. And I guess like, you know, Scott McLeod had the whole Two by two matrix about artists focusing on form versus content and mm-hmm. all, all that. And I guess I'm more of a story person, question mark. And like I do try to use the new media, uh it's new media strengths uh to help bolster. Yeah. <laughs> to try to help with that. Ask the question like how do I use new media to in my work um to build better connections with people? Um I don't I think it, it does, but only the same way that like a really good uh film or novel does, uh, because my stuff is single player and it doesn't actually connect. Uh, to people beyond, um, you know, people sharing their story, or at least like me sharing my story um, with other people. And that's fine. I know we lightly touch on this,
0: Kate, about the phones and how like a before smartphone, now after <laughs> life, life after smartphone, what is it like? A S
1: That's
0: a dangerous, dangerous metric. But like, I don't know, like, um, are we getting more disconnected to each other or do you feel like um the ability for smartphones to connect to ourselves in like both visual ways and texting and calling each other and stuff like that has has that ability kind of affected your art practice? I'm sure it has. It's a weird question. Yeah, I mean it
2: must have. <laughs> I think it probably affects everyone's creative output because it's it's just there in our our day-to-day lives. Now, for me, one of the things that is not necessarily unique to the phone, but to computers as a medium is that um, as an artist, I can write code to make my own tools. um, So I can look at what's available to me in the toolkit and work from that or deviate from that. The nice thing about working as an artist rather than a designer in a medium is that you're less beholden to the standards of the platform that you're using. So you can break things a little bit Mm -hmm. and you can push Mm -hmm. on the boundaries of what is possible or what is allowed in the platform you're using. And that's something that I think plays a really important part in my work.
1: I mentioned this earlier before we started recording that I really like appreciate and like admire, like how your work just like messes with the medium itself. I said earlier, like I like message more than medium, but I think about it. No, that's a, that's a total lie. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't know. Like just messing with the medium. (laughs) It's, It's the message. I don't know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Marshall McLuhan is like rolling around in his grave right now <laughs> it's
1: like wait a minute what
0: <laughs> but definitely like I think there's so much in messing with the medium so that you're almost giving emotion or a personality to, to a phone giving it context you know mm-hmm. in that like it almost comes alive in your hand and like what if it could stare back at you what would it be thinking is it thinking anything I have no idea <laughs> That's such an interesting premise. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, this whole podcast was about creating human connections, but like, oh my God, are we now creating like an emotional connection to our phone and our devices? And should we, or like, is there something interesting that comes out from that? So for me, like ever since I saw that piece, I just keep looking at my phone in a different way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you remember Tamagoshis or Neopets? Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah. So emotionally connected to my no pets.
0: Oh my God, I was not. I'm a terrible oh. human. When I had a neopet, I was like, I never fed it. Oh. <laughs> because they never died. They, was, they were always like starving, but never died. <laughs> but like Tamagotchis, they definitely died. Like I remember mine, at least mine was like an off brand Tamagotchi. So I don't know if real Tamagotchis died, but mine definitely did. <laughs> so I would come back to it like a week later and it would be all bones and you'd have to reset it. Be terrible. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> I know. It's for kids. And hey man, they have to learn about death at some point, And that's going to be a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. Forget the meaning of life. What's the meaning of death? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> or do they just go together? I don't know. <laughs> um so actually one question I I wanted to ask was um is there an example of a close relationship or even a comment from something that you guys both have made um like close friendship or a relationship or something that couldn't have happened without tech. Well, we're chatting. That's true. It's true. It's true. We are not in this. We are actually all not in the same place, which is incredible. Thanks, technology.
1: Not even in the same country. (laughs) No, that's true.
0: I heard something about how Terry Gross is never in the same place as the people that she interviews. And so I'm just trying to follow (laughs) suit. This is all on purpose. (laughs) Um yeah, but it's true. I feel like a lot of like I make this joke that I have so many friends because mm-hmm. of Twitter mm-hmm. that I actually have never met in real life. And then when you meet them, you're like, I don't know if I am allowed to say hi, because we've had a lot of chats on Twitter before, but I I don't know if I like do
2: I pretend I don't know them or will they recognize me? Is my photo my avatar photo good enough? Will they know it's
1: me? <laughs> <laughs> Someone recognized me yesterday from my Twitter avatar and my Twitter avatar is a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> but so iconic amazing <laughs> that's pretty great did they say that uh they also expected to they also knew that i was in montreal and we were planning to meet but like next week and then we just bumped into each other and then so crazy but yeah actually that's actually an example of like a relationship slash friendship i wouldn't have made without tech um because we were both going to the same um women and non-binaries in tech meetup and um also like yeah thinking of like other like friends i've made like. First, like, meeting them through Twitter and then meeting them in real life, like, say, the I.O. conference. Mm -hmm. Ooh, hello. Um, uh, I.O., not Google I.O. I also recently moved countries, and so I actually just moved to Montreal three months ago. And, yeah, at first, like, I was actually feeling, um, I I don't want to say, like, depressed, but, like, feeling, I don't know, really sad and, like, throwing shit at a wall. Because, like, I, I didn't see any of my friends, and, like, all my friends were back in the U.S., and I was very sad. And... I was very grateful that um well one that friends introduced me to friends or friends who live in Montreal, but also like um meetup dot com uh, and like they're not paying me Ooh. to say this, you know but um but yeah, I, I actually made like several new friends through Meetup I think like um the tech seems to do best when it's like at least for me personally like um at least like you know this web seems to be really good at discovering it and like meeting new people, but like to actually like I guess like breadth, like, like, but like for actual depth, uh, I think, I still think like nothing really beats, um, meeting people in person. And in that case, like tech also still helps coordinate, like, you know, just coordinating a time and place to meet. Uh, I use doodle.com all the time to like organize, uh, friend meetups. Like, uh, my birthday was a while ago and we all organized a little dinner together. And of course we had to use doodle because, because everyone's busy. <laughs> I feel like I can't make friendships
0: unless uh, I have it in Google Calendar, which is a terrible thing. And again, <laughs> Google did not pay me for this. Um, <laughs> whenever, whenever I want to catch up with friends, it has to be my calendar somewhere or else I will forget, which is really mm. not great. Yeah. But
1: actually, one thing I've been doing since moving to Montreal is I have specifically been scheduling a monthly video call with uh, all my close friends. Oh. Um, so for example, uh, uh, my friend in New Haven, first Monday of the month. Uh, My friend in San Francisco, last Thursday of the month. My friend in Boston, uh, last Sunday of the month. Yeah, so on and so forth. It's so sweet. Oh my gosh. That is so touching. Yeah, because otherwise we'll just be both like busy and then we'll forget it and then we'll both die alone, you know? <laughs> 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 to bring back like a concrete example of like how to collaborate with one's fear is that it's kind of like a very, 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 very loud smoke alarm. Uh-huh. It's like the smoke alarm is like unnecessarily loud, but it is pointing to an actual like, unmet need or actual danger and like in this case like I do value and I love my friends yeah and like that we're gonna die alone part is maybe the smoke alarm being a bit too loud (laughs) but like it does point to a problem and yeah it's worried about me it's just very very loud but uh I had to worry I was anxious um but I heard about a solution from a oh I forgot who I heard it from whatever um, but yeah, so that's the solution, uh, I heard about and I tried it and it's been going well so far. I've been in Montreal for three months, still keeping in touch with my good old friends in the U.S. So far away. <laughs> uh, come back. <laughs> Actually, thinking
0: about the, um, the smoke alarm example that you're talking about when it comes to designing the anxiety game. I mean, even though you're saying that the games often are like not discussions, but a one player. Or Kate, when you create experiences or you create pieces where there's are video work, where people watch something that you've created, um, you know, there might not be a back and forth, but there's definitely, I guess, like a deliberate interaction or a deliberate way of designing it so that people experience it or induce questions in a certain way. So what are the, some of the interaction design priorities that you guys have or like questions that you consider when creating these things?
1: Great
2: question. <laughs> So we're looking for interaction design or design principles in our practice or how we approach our creative work. Yeah. This one is a hard question for me to answer because recently my works, some of them are interactive and some of them ultimately end up not being strictly interactive, even though that is like my professional background. Uh, I've been making a lot of video work lately and the video work, I think comes out of more of a trial and error kind of process where I don't know what I'm going to see or I don't know what I'm looking for. The original idea for Phone Loves You 2 while I was working on the software and didn't quite have everything yet was that I was going to record for a single day and make a feature-length film, uh, expecting that the amount of usage per day might be somewhere in the one and a half to three hour (laughs) Uh, time zone, but there was something about seeing you know watching the footage from one day taken a little bit haphazardly not uh in a scripted way, but in a i'm just going about my life going to grad school, going to work um mm. going home making dinner uh something about the footage was really boring, <laughs> but I felt like maybe if I kept doing it, there would be something there. So I think part of the design process is building enough of something that you can have a prototype or something that feels like you can look at and ask yourself am I close? Is this worth doing more of? Mm. Should I stop this? Should I dig deeper and weirder? For me getting to that place is really important. Um but I also usually have to do a lot of, you know, talking myself up before I get to that point where I have to convince myself that the first software prototype is worth doing.
0: It's funny. I feel like a lot of the questions that you're asking about your piece are questions that I'm asking about my own life. <laughs> <laughs> this, is this working? I don't really know. Is this, what's <laughs> worth doing? <laughs> are there bugs in my life? I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, I guess our practice is life to some extent. Um, but yeah, that's, that's like an interesting thing to consider just because you went from, you know, designing very interactive things that work to then like creating video work where you kind of have to become your audience, but like, there's no way for them to, I guess, iterate or like affect things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you kind of have to like design it in a way that hopefully works for a majority of people when it comes to like video timing and like, I guess, organizing the videos in a certain way. I'm sure the way that you would organize it in a calendar format so that you could see all these different times and dates pop up at different times. I mean, I thought that was wonderful. And I'm sure that design process took a lot of thinking
2: yeah it took a long time to get at and the project started in a different spot where i ran the software for about a month and didn't really know what i was going to do with all the video um mm-hmm. as i was collecting it so an a first iteration of the project was just answering the question well what's here Uh, What Mm -hmm. do I have now? Can I look at all of this? Um, I have over 1,100 video files. Now what? Oh, wow. Um, So the first iteration of the work was just a gridded aggregate of all of the clips playing at the same time. Because I just needed to see what was there. And the sheer quantity of the videos was what brought that first piece together and let it feel like a complete thought, at least. Mm. Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't the end of, you know, that line of inquiry or exploration right. um, for that kind of work, it was the first version of the work that felt like a
0: complete thought.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so
0: beautiful. I love the way that you explain
1: that. <laughs> I really like that framing of like art as an exploration, like almost like on a research project. Mm-hmm. And then like, yeah, then you have a thesis at the end and then there we go. It's a complete thought.
0: Yeah, the complete thought I really love. Nikki, when you're creating... I was going to say explorable explanations. Yeah, (laughs) we screwed up with the name; it's way too long. (laughs) Um, But when you're designing explorable explanations or games, when designing these interactions, are there like certain questions that you ask yourself about, like how the audience is going to feel, and how you decide to make decisions based off of that?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess like in the last, well, in some of my explorables, I've been like specifically very conscious of like how I want to use interactivity in this um, uh, interactivity to. Help the player learn something, or uh, have them feel a specific emotional experience. And I uh, also like—it just came to mind as Kate was um, elaborating on her work. There's a difference between like digital and interactive, mm-hmm. definitely. Because yeah, like "Phone Loves You" is uh, not strictly interactive, or like interactive right. in the same way that all art is interactive. In that right, like, mm-hmm. the viewer can't not put themselves into the work. Right. Yeah. Anyway, but um, for a crisis of anxiety. As a friend who playtested it, very bluntly put it, Nikki, is this a personality <laughs> test? Ooh. <laughs> I feel so called out, Nikki. That <laughs> actually was like one of the, um, in my conscious thought, like this is how was going to use interactivity in Adventures of Anxiety is um, explicitly asks you to express your fears into the game and then it tallies it up in a nice little way. And by nice, I mean, not nice, but um, it's part of the narrative. You know, you'll, you'll get it when right. you play it. <laughs> There's a really wonderful narrative payoff at the end, I promise all right
0: <laughs> I look forward to it. I'm very excited
1: for like most of my explorables um where you just like play around with simulations um I've been using i guess to be i guess honest with myself like I have like a half baked like idea like my thought is, oh, people can just like play around with the parameters of the simulation. And then they'll get an intuition, which is the conscious thought and the designing principle going into how I use interactivity to help people learn something in these, um, explorable explanations. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like hedging a bit because, you know, doing a bit more research on the educational psychology literature and all that, that is not entirely how intuition works or building intuition works. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there needs to be more scaffolding. So, um... Anyway, so my career is a lie and
0: uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, ooh, (laughs) well, I mean, like, so my brother uh, has, he just completed his PhD in psychology and we go back and forth between all these things all the time because I'm a very emotional person and he's super academic. And like, of course he researches emotion regulation. And so Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to go back and forth between like what is quote unquote right or wrong, because there is no right or wrong, but like there becomes a question of like, if I'm going to make artwork, you know, we never really know whether something is correct or whether something is like how it is. But for me, if it feels right, if it feels true to what I'm trying to say, that's usually when I'm like, okay, yeah, that at least it's like honest about what message I'm trying to um, share with someone else. Um, Mm -hmm. But I definitely go back and forth all the time because I'm like, oh man, is this accurate? Or is this like, you know, (laughs) I always have to gut
1: check. Yeah, I guess that the big problem is like, even if it's like, and like, yes, I guess like it's a necessary condition that it is like true to what you actually feel and believe. Right. But then, of course, the hard part of being an artist is, you know, can you communicate this in such a way that the receiving audience, most of them, will also understand the honest thing you're trying to say? Because yeah. like, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, uh, I'm trying to get the kind of an example, but like, you can say something that is honest and true, but in such a clumsy way that someone interprets it in a way that is completely antithetical to what you meant.
0: Right. But there's never any real way that you can get everybody Right, yeah. like, and that's something that you definitely. I, I mean, I wish everybody knew. Like, if there is a big group of people that like don't get it, that's natural because, especially the more nuanced your emotions get, not everyone is going to understand, and that's okay.
1: Mm-hmm. But that's the that's the hard task of an artist to put nuance into. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, <laughs> nuance is hard. I should have gone into finance. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> Why am I doing this? <laughs> Going up in another tab, uh, the the study that I read in the educational literature that has 6,000 citations and made me question my life decisions. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Does Not Work, an analysis of the failure of constructivist discovery, problem-based, experiential, and inquiry-based teaching.
2: Will you
1: send that to me? Yeah, I was going to say, I want to read in the link of this podcast. God damn it, (laughs) of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just summarize so that we're not all left on a hanging note. Um, So, the uh, main researcher behind this, I guess, well, second author, well, he's the most famous one here, is um, yes, like if you just put a pure beginner into like a pure sandbox mode, uh, they'll be overwhelmed. They're cognitive. You know, we can hold seven plus or minus one, sorry, seven plus or minus two chunks in our working memory. Or four plus or minus one. Like, they keep changing the number. Anyway, you have some limited working memory. And if you put a total beginner in a completely complicated, complex environment, like you just like put a beginner French speaker in France, or you put someone who doesn't know any uh, math beyond algebra into a quantum computing course, like they will not be able to learn. Like They will just be overwhelmed and their working memory will be completely filled up and they won't be able to learn any new stuff. Um, so the title is not as extreme as the actual results. So the results are not actually extreme as the title says. Cause, you know, guess what? A- academia also does clickbait. Did Whoa, you know no that way? <laughs> <laughs> a more accurate statement of their uh, findings, which as far as I can tell, like, is true is, um, beginners don't do, this is actually really interesting. And I, I did a talk on this, like, recently. And I think the video should be up, um, soon-ish is the expertise reversal effect. Learning by doing. Is less effective for beginners and more effective for advanced learners. And learning from a textbook or a worked example where the steps are done for you step by step is more effective for beginners and less effective and actually negative for advanced learners. Because if anything, I would have thought it would be the other way around. I thought like the advanced learners would be willing to put up with a textbook and beginners would have been more excited by like the hands-on learning Mm -hmm. by doing. And of course, like this is what I thought because I came from games and like, all the good, well-designed games like do teach you through learning by doing, but the thing I didn't appreciate and like so the actual finding that this clickbaity academia title. Um, anyway, the point is it's scaffolding basically give people just the right amount of challenge that fits their current uh, level of knowledge. So for beginners, this would mean like not a pure sandbox mode, but like a very, 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 very small sandbox, or like you can change one or two things, which which actually my work already kind of does, is like in the very beginning, there's a simulation and you can change one parameter, all right? Then once you get used to that, you can change two parameters and then like goes on and on. And at the very end, there's like a giant sandbox. Um So that like actually more or less fits with the uh, cognitive science literature on like working memory, uh, overload and scaffolding. So basically the explanation for the uh, expectation reversal effect is Someone who's at the beginning at a workout, like, you know, does better with five pounds than a hundred pounds. And someone who's more advanced does better with a hundred pounds than five pounds. Wow. The workout reversal effect. Wow. <sighs> I feel like I've been doing everything wrong. Why does <laughs> I feel. All the time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, it's everything ever. And then you die. It's great. <laughs> um, I'm going to try and find if you could send us this link, Nikki. I'm going to post it to the podcast. Um description so that everyone else can read it as well. But to circle back into, <laughs> to circle back into human connection and stuff, um, one question that I did have um, is, has being vulnerable to a mass audience or creating vulnerable work had any negative consequences? I feel like, you know, with the rise of Brene Brown and all our TED Talks and being vulnerable and the power of it, and of course, my own interest in vulnerability as a topic and how powerful it can be, I feel like it's not good to pretend that there are no negative consequences. Or negative things because that's natural that's like how the world works so have you both experienced negative things from your work
2: when i first started showing some of the phone loves you to work and still continuing through recently i usually feel very ill before uh, the show opens uh, where uh, i just feel okay am i gonna do this again letting all these people look at this footage uh, in this very public way. But I think that I've been relatively lucky in that I haven't I haven't faced a backlash yet for anything that I've done. I think because the work is in some ways very personal, but also not quite that personal uh, because it is usually presented as an aggregate of things. It feels that I am hiding a little bit in... This idea of data, <laughs> um, as the footage and content of a lot of my work lately,
0: I think it's funny because like when we had the show vulnerability, a lot of people had told me how interested they were in your piece. One of the most common comments was like, "It's crazy because in selfie culture, you know, we angle the phone in a particular way to see ourselves in a very like appealing way, but." When you kind of naturally turn on your phone, when you're lying in bed or you're looking down on it while sitting in your car or something, it's like probably the most, not the most, but like not particularly flattering angle. Um, and like, you mm-hmm. know, you look fine. But yeah. But like, <laughs> you know, it, it's a very, to me, like vulnerable situation to put yourself in because you're not curating it. You're not curating content, right? Usually when you see Instagram posts or things like that, those are like after 50 shots of like someone trying all these different lighting techniques and angles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And for you, it's just so raw. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that
2: is that the things that actually make me nervous in showing that work are things that probably wouldn't read as that revealing to other people. Because I think I don't feel that bad when my phone gets an angle. I mean, I wouldn't send a picture of myself, you know, taken from underneath my chin to someone unless I was probably (laughs) trying to be funny. Um, And I think that people who see the work Kind of know that that's what the angle is like it does communicate Mm -hmm. that very well. So it doesn't, doesn't make me feel bad to show that to people. There are some, you know, things that only I would know are nervous tics or like, anxious Mm, habits that I have, like a certain way that I might scratch my face, right? So I feel really, really awful about showing Some of those clips to people, but I think for the most Mm -hmm. part, they don't even register with other people that are looking at the work because they wouldn't know that that's unless they know me very well. They may not know exactly what each one of those gestures is.
0: Yeah, it's incredible that you're able to decipher those two things of like what you find, like really, I don't know how to say like something that you would rather other people not see, but also consciously knowing that other people are not going to care. And that's like, (laughs) in a weird way, part of adulting. (laughs) <laughs> well, like you kind of learn over time. You're like nobody cares. Yeah, <laughs> people care way less than you think they do. Yeah. <laughs> you doing that piece, I'm sure, was definitely a process of learning that as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's great,
1: um, Nikki. As for me, I think um, the only like time that comes to mind where I've had like uh, any backlash against like something personal I put out was coming out Simulator, and like it was like the usual homophobic comments like Nikki go choke on a dick and I'm like well yeah <laughs> like, yes exactly yeah <laughs> but uh other than that um yeah not really um, much I guess it's I guess like I mean other than you know there's, there's always like negative comments and stuff on yeah. the internet but mm-hmm. um it's I mean,
0: you say that so casually, but I think for most people, you know, like one mean tweet and stuff can ruin their day. So like the fact that people say it so casually, I feel like requires so much maturity. And I'm sure you've gone through so much to be able to say that so casually.
1: It's, uh, It's weird that my, I guess, anxiety slash fear is not cued by internet comments, but like like a straight comment in real life would just like send me. In yes. Yeah. <laughs> Relatable content. here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, and I lost my train of thought. Uh, yeah.
0: I do wonder like, you know, whether, cause I dabble back and forth between being an artist and being a producer where I'm helping other people make their work. And the stress that comes with both is very different. Mm-hmm. And like lately I've been thinking a lot about this, but like the stress that comes from being a producer is of course, trying to make sure the work gets done and, make sure it gets done to the expectation of the artist. And you have to almost like really, really understand the artist to a point where you know what they would like and what they wouldn't versus the stress of making your own art is that you're trying to be as honest as you can with yourself and make sure other people are understanding what you're trying to say. And I wonder, you know, whether, you know, when you're creating your own work and you're honest about it to yourself and you put it out there I wonder if it's easier then to deal with the negative feedback because you yourself know that you've done the best that you can to communicate what you're trying to say. And if other people don't understand it, that's like their interpretation. Um, And I wonder if that's like me telling myself that, (laughs) but I wonder if it makes it easier to digest, you know, the negative feedback or like kind of put them off to the side because you're never going to get everyone to understand fully what you're trying to say and you can just do your best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, there have been some fucked up interpretations of Power of the Polygons. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, like, the Power of Polygons proves that people are naturally racist. Therefore, not racism is good. Oh, oh my no. god, <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to say. <laughs> what? Not in <even> the fucking slice! <laughs> you didn't get it at all. Yeah, but I'm okay with, like, the outliers like that because, like, there is, like, if you can interpret that like that, like, <laughs> there's nothing I could have reasonably done.
0: There's no point in trying to convince because... You can't, yes, unless someone wants to be convinced
1: or is open to it, yeah, 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 I think people will bring
2: their own perspectives and lived experiences to your work. Something that was tough for me when I was first showing Phone Loves you too is that um a lot of people I was showing it to wanted to talk about selfies and selfie culture, and for me, mm-hmm. I had felt that I featured myself in this work because it was <laughs> really hard to ask other people to do it um like it was really invasive (laughs) (laughs) and a little bit too much to ask other people for a different kind of project for user is present um ultimately I found a way to work through that but um that was something that was sort of hard for me to take initially because I hadn't really been intending to engage with that aspect of the work but of course it does um, because I'm the artist and they're all videos uh, of me in one version of the the work so people who think about that you know aspect of network culture more are of course likely to draw that um, suspicion but I was really really bothered by that at first because I, I didn't really want the work to be about me <laughs> even though I was in it
0: yeah. I mean, uh, definitely a big part of phone loves you too was at least the way that I saw was just what it would be like if you, your phone was alive and it started seeing things. And like, let's be honest. Of course, the first thing it's going to see and, or what it sees all the time is you. And that's not necessarily about selfie culture, but it's just like what the phone happens to see. <laughs> but it's perhaps just like the time that we live in and stuff and like Instagram culture and all this stuff. That's just naturally what people gravitate towards because that's how they use their camera most naturally um and so it's like kind of inevitable but you know during times like that I guess for you was that like a well you know let me step back and know that that wasn't my intention and or do you feel the need to kind of like convince people that that wasn't the intention
2: I don't feel that I have to convince people that they're reading Mm -hmm. the work wrong or that their interpretation is wrong um because I like to hear what People draw from the work. And so I can learn from that. And it was also ultimately like a good push to ask other people to use the software. I had a couple of friends use the software uh, in a more controlled way where they were able to self-censor, self-edit things that they didn't want me to have. So we we ran a process that everyone recording agreed to. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it was a good outcome. It was a good push. From you know other artists, I was talking to from my classmates, from my cohort, from my advisors, as well as in grad school, to say, okay, if you're sincere about this, have other people do mm. it. Um, yeah, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable, asking people to do this. Uh, oh boy, oh boy,
0: yeah, <laughs> that's a good. Push. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> I have a question. Go for it.
1: Yeah, because like that, kid, okay, actually was a really like powerful uh mm-hmm. or interesting like dilemma and I guess like brings up the question of like when making art question for you too Natalie um is like mm-hmm. how do you like balance between like wanting to say a specific thing versus mm-hmm. leaving stuff open to interpretation and letting the viewer put themselves into the work? Like how much space do you make it for you versus the viewer? And I say versus in quote marks. Yeah yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um I guess I'm not sure. For me, I feel like I'm very much hosting this podcast as a way to learn from more practiced artists and like learn from people who have done more work. But for me personally, I'm like, I will be vulnerable and say, like, I'm definitely a controlled person. I like want to make sure that everything is interpreted the right way. And there's never a way you can make sure people interpret things the right way. But the more that I do work, the more enlightening it is to hear feedback or hear people's thoughts that were so unexpected. And so I feel like personally, I'm more geared towards like creating a situation that allows people to ask questions they never would have considered mm. rather than trying to tell them something. Um, that's like, I guess, the way that my own work has changed um, or the way that I approach doing work has changed. Um, it's more like, how do I create a situation that makes people see something that they usually wouldn't pay attention to? Um, and then from there, ask their own questions or like kind of guide them to ask a question. Um, rather than trying to deliberately tell them, this is what I think about this thing. Mm -hmm. That answers your question. I think
2: a lot of my work doesn't ever feel done to me. Um, Like I mentioned before, it gets to a point where I feel like it is a thing that I can show to other people and that they can understand as a finished work. But in having people see and view the work and seeing how they react, sometimes that's where a new idea comes from. And just seeing okay, well, what if I made another version of this work that pushed harder on, or that was more invasive or that <laughs> pushed harder on the data aspects over the video? Um, what would that look like? What would the sound, what I get asked a lot, um, why is there no sound uh, in some of my video works? And so, you know, that's a source of a question that becomes a new line of work mm. To So I think, For me, especially as someone who is working full-time in another profession, I teach an ongoing question for me is how do I keep my art practice going with this other full-time job that I have? And so having these like hints of questions from people that are looking at my work is something that can be very generative for me in figuring out what I'm going to do
1: next. Mm -hmm. That's great. Those are both good answers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What about you actually, Nikki?
1: (laughs) Do you have an answer to that question? You can have an answer to any of your own questions, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> fine, fine. No, actually, that's actually really good. Like, I guess, like, like, I had a question and, like, I realized when you were answering that, like, maybe the frame of my question is wrong. I, I guess, like, I didn't even, like, think about the possibility of, like, asking, like, like, the frame of my question was, like, expressing myself versus letting the viewer express themselves. And. Like, Natalie, uh, your friend was like, well, why not, instead of like telling the viewer, like ask them questions? This has never occurred to <laughs> me. Mostly because I make like educational stuff. So, like, it's very didactic. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I guess like I do want somehow. Yeah. How do I ask? How do I ask good questions? That's a good question. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, actually,
0: Kate, when you were saying your work never feels done to you, I wonder if like, for both of you, are the questions that you ask for yourselves ever answered? Because I mean, when I, as a curator, see both of your bodies of work, I kind of feel like they're iterations. They're like continuations of each other. It's like, how do I create interactions that allow people to like experience anxiety or learn new things? Or Kate, like, how do I create pieces that like make people see their phones or gestures differently? And like, I guess for me, from a curator point of view, it makes me wonder, like, oh, is this just another way of asking the same question? But like you learn from the feedback from the past piece of how to ask a question differently or ask a question better. But do you guys see that in your own work at all?
1: Hmm. I was actually talking with a friend about this today, and this is a kind of a thing that's been bothering me for a while, is that each of my works feels discontinuous from the last. Like my last published content is an interactive story, mm-hmm. almost like a visual novel about anxiety. And the one before that is an interactive comic about spaced repetition, which is like this studying technique. Yeah. And the one before that was this like interactive powerpoint about network theory and i guess what's been bothering me is that i can't really see an obvious like connection from each project to the next it feels like i'm jumping between different questions rather than trying to answer one and is that a bad thing and like am i secretly asking like the same question i mean
0: i don't think so I i don't think you need to ask the same question i wonder whether through the work or through creating explorable explanations or things like it might be more how do i teach someone more clearly through interactions or games or something like that that's like more less about the topic itself and more about the way that you're expressing them or the way
1: that you're creating them I guess the question for I guess like being very existentialist is how do I be a good person oh, oh man <laughs> and, and so right now uh, I guess like for the last few years, I've been like trying to make my work more valuable, um, to others. And so i like, have been making like all these educational things. Like the first explorable explanation I made was like actually a game developer tutorial. Um, so it had a very specific concrete thing. And then, uh, I guess like the adventures of anxiety one is been me trying to approach the question in a different way of like, what is both valuable to me to make, but also valuable to others? And anxiety disorder, uh, seems like the best uh, subject at the time. And I guess like recently, I mean, I just published the game like a week ago, so maybe this is like too early to say. But like, is like the kind of hidden assumption this whole time is that my whole like, how do I be a good person or like live a good life? I've been making work the pillar of this the whole time, mm. and I've been thinking maybe maybe I could just hang out with friends boy, more. Oh boy, definitely where I am at life, or just enjoy being alive. <laughs> <laughs> i guess like it feels so selfish and like i don't know if that smoke alarm is something to it feels selfish to enjoy being alive (laughs) (laughs) not at all
0: not at all i don't think think that's selfish at all
1: i know that intellectually but like still (laughs) but it feels selfish (laughs) so i don't know maybe for my next project i can just experiment with just trying to be selfish and not think about how it helps other people totally Mm-hmm. It's fair. I don't know if that sounds like a psychopathic thing to say, but there. No. It.
0: <laughs> at least for me, it's like by you practicing being selfish and seeing what that is like allows other people to try to be selfish themselves as well. And like, for me, at least, you know, I always think about how do I use myself as an example to test things so that other people can use them in their own life practice as well. Um, so that could be beneficial. But then does that actually make it selfish? Who knows? Maybe I'm ruining it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know, uh, Kate. Did you have any thoughts on <laughs> these existential questions?
2: Ah, <laughs> uh, existential questions. Um, you were talking yeah. about being vulnerable, so we're talking to ask for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think in in my work, sometimes I will find that I have answered the wrong Ooh. question, or that the initial question was not the right question. Um, because I'll I'll get to the work and be like, oh, I answered. The question I had, but it wasn't actually the thing that I cared about. Um, and so sometimes that becomes like a new idea or a new thing that that threads uh, a new work. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes answering a question also is like, but what
0: about this other thing? What about this? That's, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's like I didn't think about that. <laughs> well, that, that was like a really nice, uh, vulnerable place for us to end. And um, unfortunately, we are out of time and i feel like i could just keep going with this really raw space that mm-hmm. we're in right now um but lastly just just for a nice little outro is there anything that you do miss out of the good old times when things weren't so digital
1: <laughs> i literally do not remember
0: those times <laughs> right it's like i don't remember when there was no internet and when i couldn't call my friends all the time what is dial up i don't know
1: yeah. I, I do remember google reader Oh, oh good great great answer. <laughs> so in <much>. GeoCities tripod dot com a dial up sound. <laughs> do you miss that Ooh. though? Do you <laughs> I don't know if I, no, the I sound. miss the dial-up sound? <laughs> yeah. I feel like the internet would be a better place if before you log in, you have to listen to the dial-up sound. Now
0: there's <laughs> time for appreciation of what the universe is giving you or allowing you to do. <laughs> Now all these youngins are taking it for granted. <laughs> awesome.
2: <laughs> I think uh one thing I may miss is trusting myself in my own memory <laughs> a little bit more. <laughs> um Yeah. I mean, for real though, the the number of things that I'll write, it's very good to stay organized and write things down. Um, but I sometimes feel like as soon as I've written something uh down in either Ooh, I'm not just saying this product. This is a product I like <laughs> uh as soon as I write something in Evernote, it's gone. I can't remember it. Yeah. You know, it's like I know I can look it up yeah. later. Um and so the stuff is all working as intended, but I, I feel like I used to be better at remembering yeah. things, uh and kind of knowing where things were either geographically or just in how I had organized my you like, know, where's files. Or I
1: don't know, let's find it on the maps. <laughs> Can either of you remember what you did three days ago? Oh, don't put me on the spot now. What was three Without looking it up. God. Because i was <laughs> thinking about it and I realized I can't. What day was Friday? that? I did something on Friday. <laughs> Friday. Friday.
2: <laughs> I must have been sleeping. Uh, yeah, come on. I cheated. I went to a conference
0: so oh, nice. That was a like out of band occurrence. No, actually just <laughs> checked Evernote to see what she did on Friday. <laughs> 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 Amazing. Um, well, thank you both for joining us. This was fantastic. Um, you can find Nikki's work at ncase.me and support them on Patreon.
1: Oh, thank you. And
0: Kate Hollenbach's work is at katehollenbach.com. Those are both going to be in the podcast description. So feel free to check out their work. It's amazing. Um, thank you both so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having us on
1: this inaugural podcast. Yeah, thank you. Woohoo! Woo.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> How do I be a good person? Um.